right now on Matter of Fact, a political groundswell in the Lone Star State. Latinos are soon to be the largest eligible voting population in the state. With this comes a lot of political power. It's the largest minority voter group in the nation. Plus, the face-off over First Amendment rights. Seem to, to not worry about protesting when when we as white people uh, show up to our capitals with AR-15s. Why this Tennessee lawmaker says criminalizing protesters goes too far. And an American community trying to stop a worldwide hunger crisis, one family at a time. Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. The Democratic and Republican conventions are wrapped up and the tone and targets for each campaign set. As the campaigns focus on turning out the vote, are they forgetting about a growing voter demographic? The path to victory in November can't afford to overlook the Latino vote, which according to the Pew Research Center is 32 million strong. And for the first time, it's the largest minority voter group in the nation. To find out how Latinos see the race for the White House, we asked one multi-generational family to share their internal debate. My name's Evelyn Hernandez, I'm 61. I live in Sunnyside, Queens, New York City. My name is Sarah Garcia. I am from Queens, New York. I'm 30 years old. I consider myself Latina. I'm Puerto Rican. I am a dedicated voter, and this year I think it's more important than ever. And in fact, the issues that are motivating me right now are really social justice issues. I don't think that either of the political parties are genuinely reaching out to Latinos. I think that we're very much being used as talking points, being talked at rather than listened to. I would really like to see the politicians speak to Latino professionals like myself, people who are doctors, lawyers. We are people who have achieved the dreams of our parents and our grandparents, and that seems to be in jeopardy right now. And I think that the younger generation is basically saying basta, we don't want to settle. You're absolutely right that we are tired of incrementalism. We've waited a long time for the baby steps to work and people are dying in the process. I think without pushing for radical politics, there's nowhere for you to go. If you're not pushing as far as you can push, then you're doomed to fall short. I might consider, you know, voting my conscience and doing a protest vote, but I am going to vote. And I think what's bringing me to the polls are my loved ones. I feel a responsibility to them to do the right thing. Antonio Arellano is the interim director of Jolt Action, the largest Latino civic engagement effort in Texas. Mr. Arellano, so nice to have you. You have called this a unique moment in history for young Latinos. What exactly do you mean by that? Absolutely. You see, Texas in particular, the home of the Lone Star State, is experiencing a massive demographic shift. And Latinos are soon to be the largest eligible voting population in the state. Not only that, but the largest percentage of the population, period. With this comes a lot of political power. We are committed to making sure that young people of color in the state recognize that they have the power to transform Texas and not just decide the next presidential election, but with 38 electoral votes, we have the power to decide politics in America. It sounds incredibly inspirational, but 
I, I feel like I've been here before many, many times. And one of the challenges, as you well know, is that Latinos always seem to have the numbers, but when it comes to executing on those numbers, it often falls short. People often say Latinos don't vote. And I like to tell them Latinos haven't been convinced to vote. The Latino community is culturally, ideologically, and linguistically diverse. We need campaigns and candidates that speak to all of our different issues, that address our problems, and that propose solutions that speak specifically to us. What are the issues that are particularly this time around, you feel, are, are pushing young Latinos to actually go to the polls? You see, the mismanagement of COVID has really impacted the Latino community. Here in Texas, before COVID, we already led the nation with the largest percentage of uninsured people. And of that, the biggest chunk were Latinos. Now, Latinos are literally watching their grandparents and their parents, their loved ones, die because of the lack of access to affordable health care and this incompetence from our leaders, both at the federal level and here at the state level. And that is driving Latinos to the polls like never before. Latinos care deeply about the health care, and they're going to vote with that top of mind. What's the strategy then uh, to get those 38 electoral voters? You see here uh, in Texas, JOLT is mobilizing in Austin, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. We have built a massive universe of low propensity voters. We go into communities where strategists tell us, you're wasting your money. These people don't come out and vote. 2018 was our first electoral cycle. We knocked on uh, 45,000 uh, low propensity community homes. Out of those, 40% of our universe came out to vote. And out of the 40%, 25% were first time voters. What are the other generational divides that you see in the Latino community in Texas specifically? The older generation uh, cares deeply about an economic message, a strong economic message. They care deeply about um, issues that are day-to-day -day issues. How am I gonna get money in my pockets and food on the table? Younger generations are care deeply about the future that they're about to inherit. Healthcare, immigration reform, racial equity, climate change, gun safety. The eligible voting bloc in Texas that's the largest, it's millennials, and it's made up of brown and black youth, and they care about an incredibly progressive agenda. Antonio Arellano is the interim executive director at JOLT. It's so nice to have you. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you, Soledad. Next on Matter of Fact, protesters camping out at the Tennessee State Capitol for 75 days, demanding a meeting with the governor. Did the governor, in fact, meet with the protesters? No, he did not. He refused to. Now they face a felony charge if they continue their round-the-clock protest. And later... In November, we are expecting millions, millions of voters to request a ballot. Meet a small-town election clerk who sees the avalanche coming and thinks it's time for you to help out. Thank you for joining us for Matter of Fact. Kenosha, Wisconsin has become yet another flashpoint in the nation's summer of unrest. Anger over the shooting of 29-year-old Jacob Blake spilled into the streets after a cell phone video went viral. In the video, you can see police shooting Blake, a black man, multiple times as he leaned into his SUV, all while his three small children sat in the vehicle. Outrage over the shooting has led to demonstrations across the country, echoing those prompted by the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and numerous others. In many places, protesters take their demands to state capitals. 
In Nashville, protesters have been occupying the Capitol grounds for 75 days, demanding a meeting with the governor. Now the state has passed a law making overnight camping on Capitol grounds a felony, which could result in taking away the right to vote. Jason Hodges represents District 67 in the Tennessee General Assembly. He served in the Marine Corps. He's now in his first term as a Democratic legislator, and he voted against the bill. It's so nice to talk to you. Uh, thanks for being with me. So I want to start with the protests, because not everybody really understands or knows a lot about that story. Give us some background. What were those protests about that took place uh, outside of the Capitol doors? So it was really a Black Lives Matter protest. And, you know, they had been out there every day um, peacefully protesting. Uh, and their one request was to get an opportunity to speak with the governor um, about inequality. What were some of the things that they were complaining about and what, what their motivations were? So, you know, with everything going on, obviously, police brutality, um, just injustices, the mistreatment of minorities uh, in particular, uh, in, in the era we still live in, unfortunately. So the legislature proposed in, that Tennessee uh, would create penalties that look like the goal is to discourage future protests. Walk me through the specifics of that legislation. Yeah, so the first thing it does is it makes it a felony to camp on state property. And, and the way that's defined is um, being out there from the hours of 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. And so that, that felony carries a pretty heavy sentence of a minimum of one year in prison uh, with a maximum of six years in prison. And then the second uh, uh, major part of the bill that, that I find to be very concerning is the bill has a provision in there that, that talks about the disruption of public meetings. And that makes it a minimum of 30 days in jail. And, and the disruption of public meetings is such a broad statement that you could literally be too loud outside of the Capitol and be arrested now. There have been protests, I mean, in the state of Tennessee before. There was one about the, the tax bill, right? What, there was. What was, the, what was the backlash against that? Yes, yeah, so the income tax uh, bill that was up a few years ago, there were mass protests, probably uh, 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 bigger overall than this, um, more disruptional. Uh, the governor had a few bricks thrown through his window. Um, there were cars uh, uh, blowing their horns all day long. Um, and, and there was nothing done, you know. I mean, obviously, if, if uh, they find the, the culprit that, that threw a brick through a window, they would rightfully arrest that individual. Um, but as far as the protests themselves, they were accepted as, as uh, uh, the right of the citizens, as they should. So that leads me to say, what's the difference between the people who are protesting the tax bill and the people who are protesting for Black Lives Matter? And, and, and I think we it's an obvious answer, right? I mean, the, the people out there protesting were protesting inequality. And as a legislature, we, we confirmed the issue that um, generally white people are treated differently than black people in the eyes of the law. So then what is the recourse? So now somebody will uh, obviously have to take it to uh, uh, the courts and fight it. Jason Hodges is a Tennessee state legislator. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Ahead on Matter of Fact, people around the world are going hungry because of COVID-19. I think our community is going to be facing a different kind of genocide. They are solely depending on us. Can refugees in America's heartland meet the needs of their families living halfway around the globe? And Tulsa, Oklahoma wants you. A $10,000 incentive 
to entice you. What's the catch? We'll tell you. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. The COVID-19 pandemic has led to mass unemployment and hammered wages. One ripple effect of that economic downturn is that many immigrants and refugees living in the U.S. are struggling to send money or goods home to their families who are living in underdeveloped nations. As a group, refugees send about $500 billion to their families. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, traveled to Lincoln, Nebraska, which has a large population of resettled refugees, many who are struggling to help their families on the other side of the globe. Business was really great until COVID-19. Insurance adjuster Safe Balool. These days, taking work when he can get it. People start to work from home, so they're not traveling a lot. But Balool is not complaining. The refugee who fled civil war in eastern Sudan at 19 has seen much tougher times. For me, I have to go to the well two miles to get water every day. You know, I was little, no running water, no electricity. Didn't have my own shoes until I was nine years old. Balul, who later joined the U.S. Army and was deployed to Iraq, says the ability to help his family back home has inspired him since the day he left. So I have to succeed no matter what for them, then for me. Far from eastern Sudan and surrounded by farm fields, Lincoln is home to the University of Nebraska. And more than 30,000 refugees welcomed from all over the world. While contributing to the local economy, Lincoln's refugees, like others around the U.S., are also a vital source of support to their home countries. Corrections officer Justin Murray sending home as much money as he can every month. If I have the capability of eating three meals a day, and somebody there couldn't even find something for a day. Why would I not share one meal with him and eat two meals? But Murray is lucky. His job is essential. With COVID-19 shuttering businesses for months now, for many refugees, the money is not there to send home. This situation we have right now is truly on the brink of catastrophe for countries who depend on outside support. Humanitarian organizations like the United Nations World Food Program sounding the alarm. COVID-19 is not only slowing down the critical flow of money into developing nations, the virus causing a breakdown in the food supply chain. With restricted trade, transportation and closed borders, help is not getting where it needs to go fast enough. It's critical that we get the economies going again in a safe way because the downstream impact literally means millions of people very well may die. It is a stress to um, work hard enough in order to live your life, but also to have a little extra to send. That sense of responsibility is for me, I cannot fail. Safe Balool's income now down about 50%, but he's less worried about his wife and son here and more about his family in Sudan. They struggle. Yeah, they don't have a lot, so I don't want them to struggle. But more bad news. The money he's sent for weeks now is stuck eight hours away from his family. Food is running out. I don't know what to do. I'm helpless. Helpless 
and thousands of miles away from home. In Lincoln, Nebraska, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Next on Matter of Fact, you think you're overwhelmed? And they just kept coming in. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I can't get these done. <laughs> Find out what small town election officials are doing to make sure your vote gets counted. Welcome back. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been digging into issues surrounding the increased demand for absentee and mail-in voting, talking with experts about the post office and its ability to deliver the ballots on time. So what will happen in November when tens of millions of voters join the ranks of absentee and mail-in voters? We look to Wisconsin, where more than 20,000 mail-in ballots were rejected in the April primary. And officials say they expect nearly 2 million requests for mail-in ballots for November. It's a stressful situation, as we found out when we spent a day with the president of the state's Municipal Clerks Association. My name is Diane Conan. I am the clerk for the city of Oconomowoc, and I am also the president for the Wisconsin Municipal Clerks Association. I'm hearing from many clerks around the state that they do not have all the resources they need due to the huge increase in the workload that absentee ballots are creating. And they just kept coming in. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I can't get these done. <laughs> the sooner you can request your absentee ballot, the sooner the municipal clerk can mail that ballot out to you. They have some time to make their choices and get it back in plenty of time for us to receive it and to notify them if, if mistakes need to be corrected. We do not believe that there is a lot of fraud when it comes to mail and absentee voting. Most people who request that absentee ballot vote that ballot themselves and mail it back. However, we do know that there are those individuals who will request absentee ballots for other family members and um, it is suspect that who actually voted that ballot. How about the filing, how's that going? There's a lot of pressure for the professional municipal clerk and their staff. You're trying to keep your staff safe. You're trying to keep your poll workers safe and healthy. You wanna keep your voters safe and healthy. The stress is enormous and we are doing our best. You know, we need everybody to be patient. We need everybody to be understanding. That would help us tremendously. When we come back, working from home, need more personal space? In Tulsa, they say that's okay. L-A-H-O-M-A. Would you move to the Sooner State if they paid you? Finally, are you looking to move? Tulsa, Oklahoma wants you. That's right, Tulsa wants you to move there. And they're offering a $10,000 incentive to entice you. Oklahoma's second largest city is targeting remote workers ready to leave behind long commutes for good. Funded by the George Kaiser Family Foundation, workers are offered $2,500 for relocating costs, a $500 monthly stipend, and a $1,500 bonus if you complete a year in residence. To qualify, you must be a full-time remote worker or be self-employed, and you have to live outside the state, obviously. The effort took off back in 2018 when Tulsa saw the trend toward working remotely. Last year, 70 folks made the move. This year, the goal is 250 people. The pandemic might actually be helping the cause. So far, 125 people have made the move. And in Tulsa, they say, that's okay. L-A-H-O-M-A. -A. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week.